0: We are continuing our study in the Book of First Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter two, the second, really the second part of chapter two, which we started last week. You'll remember last week, in particular, Paul was defending his ministry by pointing out his motivations. He was saying. My motive, my reasons, uh, were not these worldly reasons, not for fame or glory, not for some duplicitous or immoral reason, um, not for money. My reason was the gospel. Uh, I came to you to preach the good news. And we looked at how the gospel transforms and composes our, our motives. This week, we're going to look at how the gospel transforms our conduct. Uh, we're going to see that through Paul, how the gospel changes the way we live uh, uh, in in our lives by faith. Uh, so with that, uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9, uh, and we're going to go to verse 16. So... First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 16. And just as a reminder, it's printed for you in your bulletins, or we can turn there in your Bibles. Hear God's word. For you remember, brothers, our labors and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as, that, but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in you believers At last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that you would apply it to our hearts, uh, that you would work it in us. Uh, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I, I'm going to front load something. I, I don't generally like to do this, but for maybe for fear that it would... Kind of stick in your mind while I preach. I wanted. I want to address uh, just one aspect of the end of this sermon, of the end of this uh, passage. You'll notice here that the apostle Paul says uh, he he says uh, you Thessalonians were imitators of the church in Judea, who suffered the same things that your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, and then he describes those who killed Jesus, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. The thing that I want to say at the the very outset is that words like these, ripped out of the context of Scripture, can be used for horrendous things. And in the news just recently, we have the account of a A rabbi being held hostage. And and as I think about how uh, words can be twisted and turned, I think these words could be if you weren't careful. So I just want to say at the outset, first, Paul is a Jew. Um, Everywhere he went, he went to the synagogue to proclaim the good news. As he traveled around uh, Asia Minor, as he traveled around uh, Greece, he went to the Uh, To the synagogue first and proclaimed the good news. Why? Because he loved his fellow Jews. He loved those people. We see this in Romans. His heart, particularly in verses uh, 9, chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, you see how how he longs for his own people, that they would hear the good news, that they would be saved. And many were. In fact, when I introduced this little letter to the Thessalonians, we noted that some of those Jewish converts who who turned to Christ were actually dragged by their fellow brothers and sisters in the synagogue uh, into uh, the the, the governor's office, if you will. Um, So there are Jewish converts in the church in Thessalonica. So when we read these words, the Jews, he's not talking wholesale about all the Jews everywhere. He's talking about those who particularly persecuted Christ and and crucify Christ and who persecute the Christians those fellow country fellow uh, Jewish people like himself who when they heard the good news rejected it and in fact went uh, to persecute so just so you know this is never when you hear these words it's never grounds for anti-Semitism and I just want to get that out of the way at the outset we can we can. If you have questions, you can come to me later, but I, I just wanted to set that aside. So I appreciate uh, your patience with me on that. But let's get to the heart of what this text teaches, what it does teach us uh, about, about Christ. Um, last week, when we looked at gospel motivations, we were talking about how at the very foundation of our motive as Christians ought to be the gospel. Like, why we do what we do. I challenge us to think, what is my ultimate aim in life? Think about those things. Why do we do what we do? This week, I want us to think about what motivates our conduct, meaning, or, or what drives our conduct. Uh, so, obviously, our motives, uh, but again, I want us to see how the gospel itself is the thing that drives our conduct that empowers our conduct, that empowers our Christian life. One of the, I think, one of the most difficult and challenging doctrines that we have as, you know, in theology is the doctrine of sanctification. What that is, that big word, sanctification, means just the process of becoming more holy. Sanctus is the the Latin word for holy. Uh, It it comes from that uh, idea that as God's people, we are to become more and more like Jesus, right? More holy. In fact, we'll see here Paul in a, in a moment where he says that he is in fact how he was holy and righteous and blameless in his conduct, in the, the, the apostles in their conduct before the Thessalonian church. But, I, but as we read that, we immediately ask, how can Paul say such words? How can he say, I'm holy? How can you say you're holy? The doctrine of sanctification to become more like Christ is a challenging doctrine. Not, I don't think, so much because it's hard to figure out exactly the the process, though that's challenging in itself, but because experientially we don't always feel very holy as Christians. Right? So the doctrine is frustrating. We think, I should be like this, but I feel like I'm always like this. Am I not a Christian? Finding that, that, that challenging gap. And so this morning, I want us to consider what empowers us, what changes us, what transforms us to look more like Christ. And we're going to do that in three ways. And I want us, as we think about this, as we look at this, I want us to step back and give thanks to God for his gospel bears fruit in our lives as believers. It's not a question, does it? It's a question of, it's not a question of that at all, but it is a, it's a reality, a sure statement. We ought to give thanks to God for his gospel surely bears fruit in the life of the believer. And we're going to look at this in three ways. I want to thank God the gospel bears fruit in our lives. That'll be sort of point one. Thank God for his word that it's at work in us, sort of the means by which God uses to tr- the means w- that God uses to transform our lives, and then uh, finally, we, I want to thank God that the words of hell—that's a strong word—I understand—they don't prevail against the gospel. In, in other words, those lies that we often buy into don't prevail against the gospel. You'll remember Bunyan wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, Pilgrim is, of course, it's an allegorical story, but it's a story about a, a man who, who, who becomes a Christian and, and he goes through sort of all the stages of the Christian life and all the challenges of the Christian life. And one place he goes is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And in that valley, he meets Apollyon. And Apollyon comes at him with fiery darts and arrows and says, hey, Who are you? You're just a sinner, a pretender. That's how we feel those darts of hell coming at us all the time. And I want to remind us that they don't prevail against the kingdom of God and against God's gospel. All right. So with that, let's look at the first point. Thank God the gospel bears fruit in our lives. Uh, This is a truism. Uh, For the believer, this is true. And the challenge, as I've already pointed out to you, is that the Apostle Paul says these words here to the, to the Thessalonian church, uh, that, that they were holy and righteous and blameless. You can see it in verse 10. He says to the Thessalonians, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. How can anyone say those words? Have you ever said that? Seems prideful, doesn't it? It seems, it seems a little bit blind to his own heart and reality. Who of us is, is righteous? Who of us is holy? Who of us is blameless? How could the Apostle Paul say such things? Now, we have to balance this with other things Paul has said in, 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 in Scripture. He has called himself the chief of sinners. In Romans chapter 7, he says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Right? So, both of those realities. Paul's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I, I don't do the things that I want to do. I want uh, the things that I ought to do. I don't do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet here he says, I'm holy and blameless. Which is it, Paul? <laughs> Which is it? Well, first, I think we need a little bit of context. Paul, remember, is defending himself against those who opposed the apostles' ministry? He was particularly defending himself against charges of doing things out of impure motives, as we looked at last week. He was being told he was doing it for greed, or that he was doing it uh, for, for glory, or that he was doing it for other impure motives. And Paul here is saying, "No, you all are witnesses to the reality. That is not how we came. We didn't come to you out of greed. We didn't come to you looking for glory." In fact, we were persecuted, and we, we our lives were threatened. Paul's defense is to say, look, remember, see, the charges don't hold water. They're simply not true. You have seen how we've behaved among you. And so I think, I think there is a way in which any one of us, and if we're falsely accused or if we we're in a situation where we, to the best of our ability and with good conscience, follow God's word in a situation and somebody levels a false uh, accusation against us, we can say, no, I'm blameless, as if I was in a court of law, right? Um, I, I, I am not guilty of these things. That doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have sin in his heart. Paul knows he has sin in his heart. He's just saying, in this, in this situation, I'm blameless. But there are a few things that I want to note, two things in particular as we think about this for ourselves. First, the gospel, and this I think is important, what Paul is saying here. He's saying the gospel bears fruit in our lives. It does. It's necessary. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not always sure I believe this. I mean, I know it intellectually, right? I can look at Scripture and I can say that the fruit of the Spirit, meaning Christ by His Spirit, bears fruit in my life. I know that theologically. I did go to seminary. I understand these things. Um, And yet I don't believe it. Or I struggle to believe it. Maybe you're like that too. I don't know. My sins, my shortcomings, my failures... They loom large, right? They kind of cloud the, 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 the horizon, if you will. All I see, it's like a, a big gray cloud of my brokenness. So I easily echo Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I get Paul in that situation. I, have, I struggle here when Paul says, nope, I did what was right. But one thing that I rarely do is that I rarely give thanks to God for the fruit of faith in my life. How often do you sit back and say, Lord, thank you for helping me to conduct myself in a manner worthy of you? I'm afraid to say something like that. I'm like, no, but no, I can think of a thousand things that I've done wrong. How often do we thank God for the fruit of righteousness? And this is what Paul is saying here. No charges can be leveled against me. You are my witnesses. I conducted myself amongst you all in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not only did we work and toil and were not a burden to you, but we were above reproach. Paul's not saying they weren't sinners or that he had no sin. He was simply acknowledging this truth. God works in us, sanctifying us, changing us, causing us to be more like Jesus, righteous, holy, and blameless. In fact, for Paul, this conduct, the conduct that Paul had amongst the Thessalonians was what testified to the power of the gospel so that the Thessalonians saw their good works and praised God. They looked and they said, Something is different there in Paul. You see, the gospel bears itself out in our life. That is the nature of it. It's not a matter of possibility. It's a matter of absolute certainty in the life of the believer. So, believer, look for it. Expect it. And when you see it, praise God for it. Lord, thank you for doing a work in my life because I could not have put to death this sin if it wasn't for you. I could not have acted in this way. I could not have held my tongue if it wasn't for your grace in this moment. In our membership vows, we have five. And the third one is, again, it's this one on sanctification. And in some ways... It is the most nuanced of all the vows that we make as members in the church. It says, uh, do you now resolve and promise? It's big, strong language. I now resolve and promise. And then immediately following that, there's this little clause that says, in, very important, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. I now resolve and promise to rest in Christ for his power, to trust in him to work in me in reliance to the Holy Spirit. Then what's the next line? To endeavor to live as becomes, looks like the followers of Christ. It's this very well-shaped, nuanced statement. We can only make that strong resolution and promise because we know that it's not us who bears the fruit. It's the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean? It means that when we walk, we walk by faith, stepping out, saying, Lord, I don't have the power, but you can change me. And I make that walk, that endeavor to look like Jesus. But there were two things I mentioned. I said there are two things I wanted to note about this. The second thing, the first thing was that the gospel bears fruit in our lives. That's what it does. The Holy Spirit works in us. The second thing is that the gospel bears fruit in the lives of other Christians. Now, again, theologically, we all agree with this, right? We all just said yes and amen. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears the fruit, who works in our lives as we step forward in faith. And we say that about others. We would say, of course, the Spirit works in us all as believers. But note, Paul not only points out his conduct, but he points out the conduct of the Thessalonian church as well. Look here in verses 13 and 14. He says, And we also thank God, again, there's that thanksgiving, constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And of course, we'll come back to that, what's going on. But I just want you to notice, they received the word and became imitators of the other believers and what it meant to walk in faith. So Paul is recognizing and thanking God for the work of the Spirit, the power of the word at work in their lives. Now... I think this is an especially poignant point for us today, for us right now in this moment. We live in a cultural moment when our default mode is not charity, but suspicion. I think it's our default to impugn all sorts of motives and to assume the worst of people rather than assuming the best of motivations of people and taking their conduct as sincere and in good faith. Maybe not the way we would do something. Maybe not even the best way of doing something. Maybe. Though I would challenge your own questions. You know, we ought to look at ourselves. But among Christians, we ought not to start with the default suspicion and doubt. The default of suspicion and doubt. But rather, in humility and charity, look for God's work in their life. In other words, if you have a brother or sister in Christ, you may not see eye to eye on all sorts of things, but if they have sincere faith and you recognize that, then you ought to be looking for that, evidence of it, assuming the best. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't sin against one another or that our motives are always pure or that we can't be deceived, but what is your default mode with your brother or sister in Christ? How do you view them? with suspicion and doubt? Or do you see them as one in whom God is working? How often do we build up a narrative about someone based on assumption that goes something like this? Well, they said or did X, and the only possible and conceivable reason that they said or did X was because they had to be thinking Y, and people who think Y are absolutely the worst, therefore, they're the worst. (laughs) like, we just assume this doubt and suspicion that goes hand in hand. Rather, here's another way of looking at it. Rather than looking at our brother or sister in Christ and saying, they said or did X, and I know how much they have done for the good of the kingdom, how they've done for me. I know the kind of faithful Christian friend that they've been over the years. I know that they have shown all kinds of fruit of gospel faith. Their conduct has always been full of grace. Therefore, I'm going to assume that they weren't thinking why. Now, maybe I seek clarification. Maybe I ask them why they did X. Maybe I take the opportunity to gently correct. But I look at them as one whom God is at work in. And it changes the way we think about them. It transforms them. They're just like me. God is at work in them, honing off the rough parts, making them better. And so I'm going to rejoice and give thanks to God for the work that he's doing. And I'm going to bear with them in whatever weakness they might have and come alongside them and help them and encourage them and praise God for them. It's a different perspective, isn't it? When we see that God is not just at work in us, but that he's at work in others. My default mold ought to be to look and see how God is at work, how they're bearing fruit. And this will have a profound effect on our relationships. It will give us greater affection and love. It will give us greater patience. It will strengthen our faith in God and enable us to more easily work in service to the kingdom. It will cause us to praise God. It will help us to humble ourselves and a whole host of other ways. So we learn to look at others and say, thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in them. I may not agree with everything, but I know that you are at work. And Lord, if you have a way that I can encourage them and strengthen them and bring the word of God to bear in your life, help me to do that. In this moment, it's so important that we do that as believers. Well, thank God the gospel bears fruit in all of our lives. Second, Thank God for his word that is at work in us. God indeed works in us to bear fruit, but he does it through the means of grace. The means of God's grace are those things through which God gives us, uh, the means through which God gives us his grace. So if you aren't familiar with the term means of grace, um, it is theologically a kind of concept that says these are the three ordinary ways in which God Things that God gives to us uh, to help us to grow uh, by the power of his gospel and grace. And there are three things. The word, sacrament, and prayer. Those are the ordinary means. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use extraordinary means or other ways. But this is what God gives to us. He gives us his word. He gives us prayer. He gives us the sacrament that we might grow up in him. And I'll just say briefly about uh, the sacrament and prayer because they're not part of the sermon today. Um, but the sacrament, simply put, is our God's visible word that communicates to us the benefits of Christ in visible, tangible ways. That we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Prayer, of course, is that means by which we draw near to God. We cry out to him. He hears us and he answers us and so grows us up in him. But the foundational means of God's grace is his word. It undergirds and informs and transforms. This is what the word of God does. It undergirds, it informs, and it transforms. It undergirds, meaning it is the, the foundational ground through which uh, we learn everything we need to know about salvation and life. Uh, that we might grow up in Christ. That we might see the gospel. All of it. It's the word. The word is the foundation. It informs us. It tells us who God is. It tells us the gospel. It tells us about Jesus. It tells us how we ought to live. It shows us the wonders of his love. And it transforms. It doesn't come to us without power, and rather, it comes to us with power. Notice here in our text how powerful Paul views the word. Three times in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he The Apostle Paul says these words, he calls it the gospel of God. Twice in the first eight verses and once here in verse 9, he calls this the gospel of God that he brings. The good news wasn't just any good news, it was the good news of God. Now, you might read that as, oh, it was good news containing things about God, it was good news explaining who God is, good news explaining the work of Christ. But another way to say this is, was the good news of God? It is the good news from Him. It is, it is the power that comes. And it's good news because it reveals to us that it is God who saves through Christ. Paul testifies to this. He says, You know, I'm holy, I'm righteous, and blameless, right? But he knows it's not because of Him, but it was because the Word of God incarnate. Confronted him. Christ, of course, in a resurrected, ascended way, blasted a shining light down on Paul and blinded him on that road to Damascus and his life was forever transformed. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does the word do? It comes in power. It convicts. It reveals. It challenges. It compels. And it causes us to rejoice. It gives us life. Notice how Paul describes the Thessalonians' faithful reception. Again, one more time. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word comes in power. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, thank God for His Word, and it is life and good news. Second, we ought to receive it as the Word of God and let it permeate our lives. And here's the reality we can't receive it if we're not listening to it. What does that mean for you? Well, on a personal level, of course, we can go to the Word in our studies, at home, in the mornings, in the evenings. We can read it, we can look at it with our families. We have to come before it. We come under it. We can study it in our small groups. We can study it as as believers together. And I think particularly, God says, come under the preaching of the word. Our confession puts it this way. It says in chapter 21, it says, The reading of scripture with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence singing of psalms with grace in the heart is also the due administration, worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. It's the way that we grow, the conscionable hearing of the word, the sound preaching. You have to listen. Scripture teaches us in Isaiah that the word of God does not return void. And this is the encouragement to us. When we think about all that gray cloud that I mentioned at the beginning, oh, all I see is the darkness. And I encourage you, remember, God is at work in your heart. Well, how is God at work in your heart? He's at work in in your heart through his word. I want you to hear these words of Isaiah. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word. That goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is the power of the word of God in our lives. It brings us joy. Joy because it is the song of salvation. and It comes to us in power. Put yourself under the word, read it, study it, get together with others, teach it to your kids, come and sit under the preaching of the word because in there you will be transformed. And friend, if you're here today and you have yet to put your trust in Jesus, if this word stuff is kinda new, I wanna encourage you, you have an opportunity that you don't even realize you're having right now, you are being confronted with the living God in his word. And he can work in your heart. And my cry to you is, trust in Jesus, the one who is proclaimed here, who died, who rose again. Well, thank God the gospel bears fruit in our lives. And thank God for his word that is at work in us. And finally, and in conclusion, thank God the words of hell don't prevail against the gospel. This may seem like an odd place for Paul to end for us and for our sermon to end. There's all this good stuff. There's all this remember how I was with you and remember all the things that happened to you and then it ends with these hard words. Verses 14 to the end. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, one of the effects of the word of God and spirit of God in the lives of the Thessalonians was their imitation of the Judean church. And what was the imitation? It was, in fact, their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel, their willingness to endure persecution from their fellow countrymen, from their friends. This was the power of the gospel at work in their lives. And if I were a Thessalonian, I might, who just trusted Jesus, and I've become a Christian and I'm dragged out to the, to the governor's office and reprimanded, and those who preach the gospel were booted out from, uh, uh, from the city, and we were left on our own, a, a band of very young Christians trying to understand who God is while facing persecution, we might be tempted to think, well, if we're going to lose, at least we'll go down fighting. In other words, there's a, there could easily have been a discouraging thought. Okay, what was it all for? Why did, why did, I, why did I go down this path? If it's all going to come to an end, if the powers that be are going to win in the end, what's it all for? Well, I want to go back to verse 12 because there in verse 12, I think we get a hint. Look at verse 12. Paul says to them, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is something that we have to understand, believers, you face whatever trial and suffering that you might face in this life, you have been transferred from a kingdom of the world that is falling and faltering to a kingdom of heaven that will not fade away. The gates of hell do not prevail against this kingdom. And the glory, whatever glory was here in this world, whatever glory that you thought would last forever in this life, doesn't compare. It's like, a, it's like a tiny little sliver of light compared to the blazing glory of the sun. It doesn't compare to the glory yet to come. Today's kingdoms of this world, the glory that you can receive if you follow the ways of the world, Our self-glory, it's our favorite one, is to make ourselves into a God, do the things that we want to do, define ourselves how we want to define ourselves. Friends, it's not going to satisfy. It's a fading glory. It's a glory that does, may win you some favor in the eyes of people now, but what is today will be different tomorrow, and not only that, uh, it's a it's a broken glory it's the kind of glory that adam sought for in the garden when he took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he took it and said i want glory for myself and in that moment glory was lost he was grasping at straws but friends when we lay hold of christ and look at his word and trust in jesus we are resting in the arms of the most glorious king whoever lived and ever will live and who lives forever and we lay hold of him and we enjoy the glory of heaven forever. That's our hope. Friend, again, if you're here, I want you to hear this really clearly. The wrath of God comes to bring the injustices of this world to rights. For those who rebel against the King. They will receive the wrath of God for sin. Sinner, you have an opportunity to repent and believe, to trust in the King of glory who brings us home with him. The gospel bears fruit in our lives. Thank God. And it's his word that he uses to work that gospel truth into our lives. Thank God. And finally, thank God that that gospel, that good news is that his kingdom shall never end. Let's pray.